And as you're getting settled, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. This is our, our third and final installment in this chapter, but it's been a, a chapter of great importance. I hope you've caught that along the way. We started a few weeks ago and, and saw the foundation of revival in those first eight verses, and so we've made the shift in this book from those first six plus chapters in the rebuilding of the wall to then now we're, we're looking at the rebuilding of the people and the establishment of the people in community together and in worship of the Lord. And it all started with, with placing the Word of God as, as the center there in those first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8. That was the foundation for revival for the Jews there in Jerusalem. And, and, and listen, that, that's where any revival has to start. If, if you're looking to revive your own life, if you're looking to revive your family around the Lord, you must place the Word of God in its proper place. And that's exalted and central. And that's, that's true of this church as well. If we expect God to use us for his glory, what we think of his word matters. I, I think that goes without saying. But what we're going to look at this morning is the next layer then to building for God's glory. And that involves holiness. It involves holiness. Because once you get the word of God centered right and, and, and placed right, and you get it set up as the hub of what you're doing in your life and in your home, you then need to respond to it correctly in order to keep the building going. And that's where holiness comes in. What, what are we going to do now that the walls and the gates are, are up and we're looking to God's word for help? So the title of today's message is The Handles for Holiness. The Handles for Holiness because... That's exactly my goal. I want to put handles on what practical holiness looks like in your life this morning. And I think that's important because, first of all, holiness is important to God. Again, I'm, I'm the master of, of, of the obvious. But secondly, and more importantly, I think many of us aren't exactly sure what being holy means, or, or what, what it looks like in our world today. So I want to attempt to break that down for you this morning, because here, here is what I know. I know that we live in perilous times, and I understand that society in general and the world system has always been anti-God. It's, it's, it's the, the, Satan is the God of this world, and he uses the world system to attack Christians and Christianity. And so it's always been anti-God and anti-Christ, but, but I, I do want to say I, I believe what we're seeing in the United States today, in our particular culture, is one of change. And we've talked about that a little bit as, as we've moved throughout history and moved from modernism into what, what we might call a postmodern society where a postmodern society would say there is no truth or I get to define my own truth. And that's kind of the world we're living in today. And that's certainly in our culture as well. And, and I believe that because of that, we're on, a, we're on a fast track of destruction due to our blatant opposition of God and, and the word of God. And, and, and I don't say that 
saying that, you know, we've, I don't believe we've ever been a Christian country, per se. But throughout most of our history, we ha have held to some form of Judeo-Christian principles. But, but I don't think that's the case any longer. And, and we're very quickly moving away as a culture from anything that remotely looks Christian-esque. And this shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise to any of us. We've, we've been warned throughout Scripture that things would not be getting better as we return, as we near the return of Christ. But, but here's the thing about that. It sort of puts us in a, in a weird and difficult position. So let me explain that. We know that we're to be in the world, but not of the world, right? You remember Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17? Verses 15 through 18, he said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also sent them into the world. So the world is our mission field. We can't just isolate ourselves, and yet we want to remain free from the evil of the world. So how involved, this is, the, this is the, where we find ourselves, I think, and, and, and we'll talk about it. We, we've always found ourselves in this place, but how involved are we to be? How involved in this world are we to be? Because we're, we're sent to the world. We are to be in the world as witnesses of Christ, and yet we're also called to be holy while living in this world. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's lifestyle. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So first, we need to understand that holiness is essential to be a God-glorifying believer or church in an ever-changing world. So holiness is essential. But the question is, what does holiness look like? What does holiness look like today? How do we make sense of all of it and not remove ourselves from the world and isolate ourselves in a bubble so that we stay clean, but then also not jumping both feet forward and accepting everything the world is doing and putting forth as good? And this has been the age-old dilemma within the church. How do you handle that delicate, that, that delicate balance of Proverbs 11.1, 1, right? Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. And so if, if we say, you know, on, on this side is sort of a, a legalism or, or, you know, just isolating ourselves, and this side is sort of full acceptance of, of the world, right? We're to find a balance in that. And so... So does, does that mean that, that we're in the middle? Is that what that means? Because if, if that's so, here's my question. If the world keeps going this way, does that mean we keep moving with it? And, and so these are things that we have to wrestle with. How do we handle being in the world and not of the world? Balancing the mission that God has called us and yet adhering to the command to be holy. You know, we obviously want to protect ourselves and our kids. And protection, by the way, isn't wrong. 
the, the rebuilding of the walls and the gates, you know what the primary purpose of that was for in the book of Nehemiah? It was for protection. That's what the walls and the gates did. And, and we do have a biblical responsibility to our kids to protect them. And, and make no mistake about it, there is something to protect them from. So I, I believe more than ever, it's always been the case, but, but, the, but the world is out for our kids. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just going to make some statements here, and you can, you can take them for what you want. But, but, but I, to me, it is very obvious that the LGBT agenda is targeting our kids. And we're seeing it more and more. And we, as the church, cannot accept that. Certainly not within the church. Because God doesn't accept it. He condemns it. Transgenderism is a slap in the face to God. And his creation and his order. It is part of the spirit of Antichrist. And, and I have no doubt in my mind about that. And if we aren't willing to tell people the truth, according to the word of God, then shame on us. And if we aren't willing to live the truth, according to the word of God, then shame on us. So there are absolutely things to protect ourselves and our families from. The question is how? And, and this doesn't only involve things attacking us from the outside, the agenda of the world. It includes things attacking us from the inside as well. Our own flesh and our personal temptations, they're strong enough. They're strong enough. And we should want to remain pure and holy before the Lord and not be influenced by this world, but rather be an influence in the world for God's glory. And we should want that for our kids as well. And, and for many of us, we grew up in churches where the answer was to set up a system of rules and regulations and boundaries in the, in the name of protection and in the name of holiness, but the process was to legislate it. And the truth is, that doesn't, that doesn't work exactly like God intended. The law doesn't work that way. Legalism isn't the answer. It never has been and it never will be. I mean, I, I wish I could lock, lock, lock Kate up in her room until she was 20-something. But I think, I think that that would backfire. She might become a little bitter about that. And rightfully so. And, and Kate, I'm, I'm very sorry. <laughs> but you're pretty and the boys are going to like you. And I don't like that or them. <laughs> so what do we do? What do we do? Well, seriously, if you have any advice, I'll take it. But... <laughs> particularly those of you that have raised girls. But luckily, I, I, I believe the word of God gives us an answer this morning. Um, it, it always gives the answer. And it gives us the answer here in our passage in Nehemiah chapter 8. And, and we're going to look at this from both a personal and a parental uh, perspective. So we'll, we'll get back to that at the end. But how, exactly how we can put handles on holiness in the midst of this crazy world that we're living in today. And interesting enough, I, I think this is exactly where we find this generation of Jews living in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 8. So, Because think about this for a, for a second. They had just returned. 
They had recently completed the rebuilding of the walls and the gates to protect the city, and they were in the process of reestablishing Hebrew culture and society in a pagan world after many, many years of being under pagan control. And Nehemiah and Ezra were impressing upon the people that it was time to get back to what God had intended for them all along, to live as a a set-apart people. And that's the exact same thing that God wants of us today as well, no matter what culture is doing. Because all being holy means from a practical perspective is to be set apart for a purpose. To be set apart for a purpose. And if you're standing before God as holy because you are in Christ, right? So we have the difference in our standing in our state. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then according to the Word of God, you are holy because you are in Christ. And so when Christ looks at you, he sees Jesus. And so you are holy because of Christ. That's our standing before the Lord. But we also have our state, and that fluctuates where we're at day to day. And so there's a a practical element of holiness. And our state before the Lord is to be holy by living a life set apart for a purpose, for his purpose. And we're going to see that here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So let's pick it up where we were were last Sunday, starting at verse 9, and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter. So, so we're going to read like nine verses here, uh, or ten verses. And in the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 8 that we discussed a few weeks, weeks ago, if you are able, let's please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're not able, there's no, please feel no pressure to do that. But if you are able, stand. And Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 9, we read, in Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, and to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day from the first day until the last day he read in the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
Lord, we're, we're so thankful to be here today. We're thankful to, to have your word uh, preserved for us. Thank you for that. And, and Lord, as we sit under its teaching, Lord, I pray that you work in all of our hearts this morning. Uh, this very important issue of, of holiness that we're talking about today, and it's, it's something we could talk about every week in one sense, and, and yet, Lord, this morning I do hope to be able to, to help some people put some practical handles on what it looks like and what it means. And so, Lord, I know that your Holy Spirit's the only one that can do that. Your Holy Spirit's the only one that can teach your word, so I ask you to, to have free reign in our lives this morning to do that. And I pray that everything is said is true to your word. I pray that it's honoring and glorifying to you. And, um, Lord, that you would bless the time that we have together in your word. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, we've already been through some of this, so we're not going to rehash old ground. We looked at verses 9 through 12 from a, from a very specific perspective last week. But I, I do want you to understand the full picture of what's going on in these verses. Because, because now that this particular group of Jews have put the word of God as a sinner. Nehemiah and Ezra know that they need to start doing what it says. They need to start living it. And so they were reestablishing the law. And the timing was such that it happened to be the very beginning of their fall festival season. So the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the month, the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the month, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or booths beginning on the fifteenth day of the month running for seven days. Right? And we've, we've talked about some of this a little bit, but that's kind of what this chapter takes us through. And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites were laying it all out for them. And this brings us our first handle for holiness, and that is quite simply to recognize the obligation. Recognize the obligation, and, and these handles are going to be very, very simple, but, but, but they're deep inside the Word of God, because they needed to recognize what was going on and the obligation they had to, to carry out these feasts. You see, the holy feast days were to be observed in a specific way, and quite honestly, the groups that had been coming out of captivity were new to it. And it was new to them. They had been under Babylonian and then Persian control. And so Nehemiah and Ezra were reminding them what the days were about. And they needed to quit crying over their sin, although there's a time and a place for that. But they needed to quit that and observe the feast the way God designed for them to be observed. Look back at verse 10. And then he said, this is Ezra, then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our, our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then skip down to verse 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. They, they needed to understand. that They hadn't been under this teaching for a while. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in the booths in the feast of the seventh month. So this is what we call the Feast of the Tabernacles or booths. And it was looking back to when they were in the wilderness. And so they set up booths or, or many tabernacles or tents to live in for a week as a remembrance. In verse 15, that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of the thick trees to make booths as it, was, as it is written. 
And so I hope you can see what's happening. The people didn't even really know what to do. It was all new to them. So they had to be told explicitly what God expected of them and the importance of these feasts. They were holy days. And they didn't even understand what that, what that meant. They had to be told three times, one each in verses 9, 10, and 11, that this day is holy. And if you go back to when the feasts were first established by God in Leviticus 23, that chapter goes through all of them. Look at what he calls them in verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Lord, which he shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feast. He calls them holy convocations, or holy assemblies, holy gatherings. And the holiness aspect of these feast days is important to understand, because among other things, the Jewish feast were given by God so his people could understand the coming Messiah and his role in restoring man back to him. And they were to be a constant reminder of this fact that the Messiah was coming. So from generation to generation, the people would be prepared to receive him. Well, we know that they didn't. And and many times throughout Israel's history, they got off track. Even after Nehemiah, where you know we're seeing this mini revival, it doesn't last, and 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 the people fall away from him again, and so they weren't prepared to receive him, and they didn't. But that was the point. And of course, we're not Jews; we don't keep these feasts in the church age, but we do need to be prepared and ready. For when the Lord comes for us, and it's a different coming. But the fact is that one day Jesus is returning for us. I believe one day soon. And we need to be ready for him. We don't want to be ashamed when our bridegroom shows up and not be prepared to meet him. What a shame that would be. So let me show you what Jesus wants from us today. What kind of bride is he looking for when he returns? Will you find it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27? It says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be what? Holy and without blemish. You see, these feasts were to be a reminder that Jesus was coming and that the, the, the Messiah was coming, and so because of that, they were to remain holy, and these days were set aside as holy gatherings. Well, listen, we too need to be holy because he's coming back one day soon, and we need to be ready. You see, God desires holiness from us. And just as those feasts were prepared to keep people focused on the Lord, the coming rapture should keep us in the same focus. But we have to know it first. We have to understand and recognize the obligation to do it. And here's why I say that. The way many Christians live today, they obviously consider holiness as something that's optional. And I guess in one sense it is because God has given us a free will. So we get to choose, but make no mistake about it, 
God still expect it from those who he has purchased with his own blood. It's kind of like how I, I will deal with my kids sometimes. There, were there will be times where I give my kids a choice. But there's a right choice and a wrong choice. I just want to see if they're going to pick it on their own. And our problem, especially in Laodicea in America, is that we believe in the Declaration of Independence with this United States more than the Bible. And I say that because the pursuit of happiness and not the pursuit of holiness is what most people are chasing today. Even many professing Christians. Listen, we have a group of Christians living in this world today that desperately want God to solve their problems and carry their burdens, but they do not want him to control their lives or change their behavior. And it doesn't even register with us that God said to his people, be ye holy, for I am holy. And we view it as optional. Can I tell you that when God says it, he means it? He's not wasting space in the Bible. He's not wasting words by telling us something that he doesn't mean. No, he means it. In fact, he means it in the most important of ways because holiness should be of utmost importance in our lives. It's what God is looking for in his church, in his bride, in us. Charles Spurgeon once said, if I had my choice of all the blessings I can conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus, or in one word, holiness. Listen, some of, some of you in here this morning just need to start by recognizing the importance of it. Recognizing the importance of holiness to God, and the obligation we have as the children of God, which brings us to our second handle for holiness. And that is to respond in obedience. Again, very simple, very, very, very simple points. But it's one thing to know what you need to do, and it's another thing to do it. So recognize and then respond. Do what's right. That's what the Jews did when they learned about these holy days, right? So Ezra tells them, hey, quit crying. Why don't you go and eat and set forth something for those that, that don't have it on their own? And so then what did they do? Verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. They obeyed. It's just that simple. It's exactly what they had been instructed to do. They understood what God said and they obeyed. Then in verses 13 through 15, Ezra was telling them about the Feast of Tabernacles and how they were to set up booths. They need to go and proclaim this and they need to grab all these branches and they need to set up their booths and they need to live in them for a week. Well, look at what they do in verses 16 and 17. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booze. Everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim and all the congregation of them that come out again out of the captivity made booze and sat under the booze. For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. They did it. They obeyed. And they set in place what scripture had outlined. Now, I want to make note here of something in verse 17, because if you read over the verse and, and you read it kind of nonchalantly, you could think that the Jews hadn't celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles at all since the days of Joshua, right after Moses. That is Joshua, the son of Nun. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible is saying. Solomon observed it, 2 Chronicles 8, verses 12 and 13, Then Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord 
on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbath and on the new moons and on the solemn feast, three times in the year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. The first group that, that came out of captivity with Ezra, they observed it in Ezra 3, 4. says they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles as it was written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every man required. So what Nehemiah 8.17 is saying is that they hadn't observed it this particular way. If you look at the very end of verse 17, it said done so. They hadn't done so. That means in like manner. So what you see when you look at the times that it had been carried out by Solomon and by Ezra, they had done the, the, the burnt offering, the sacrifice part. But the whole, the whole meal deal with the booths, bringing the branches, everybody being involved, you don't see that. They hadn't done it that way before. So that means they were being as obedient as they knew how to be. So even though tradition and culture had changed over time, they went back to Leviticus and they were doing it according to the law. And that gives us kind of our first clue, a little bit of a clue into how holiness works in our current world. Going back to our introduction, how do we balance being in the world and not of the world? How do, how do we obey the Lord and yet fit in with culture? Well, here's where it starts. The world changes. Culture changes. Church methodology changes. But God never does. God doesn't change. The Bible doesn't change. Therefore, biblical truth doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, I'm the Lord, I change not. Hebrews 13. 13.8, Jesus Christ, same yesterday and today and forever. So if you want to respond in obedience, you must stick with the never-changing word of God. I don't care what so-and-so church says we should be doing. I want to know and do what God says we should be doing. So what is that? What's the Bible say we should be doing? Well, it says a lot of things, but... Let me try to simplify and summarize it here from our text. Because if you look through from verses 10 through 15, the people of Israel received seven primary commands from Ezra, and particularly from Ezra, but from Ezra and Nehemiah, maybe some of the Levites. There were seven primary commands that they received. They were to go, to eat, to drink, to send, to hold, to dwell, and then to publish and proclaim. These are two separate things, but I'm lumping them together as one because they're, they're certainly connected and related. So those were the seven commands they were given. Now, there's some other commands. After they published and proclaimed, they went out and said what the, what the law should do. They published and proclaimed that amongst their families. But, but I'm talking about what Ezra and Nehemiah had, had told them to do, the commands that they had given them. Those were the seven. And there's a cool study in all of that that we don't have time to go through, and honestly, we don't even need to. But, but let, me, let me simplify it and summarize it for you. These seven commands involved their living, their giving, and their serving. And, and, and those relate to us too, our living, our giving, and our serving. So it gets to your life, who you are in your home, it gets to your generosity and what you do for others in ministry. 
And it gets to your service specifically to the Lord and how you dwell with him so that you can share with others what you have in him. So let me make holiness easy for you. Quit trying and start being. Quit trying and start being. Apply Romans 12, 1 and 2. That is living, giving, and serving right there. And I'm not going to take the time to break it down for you, but you find all three in those verses. You see, we, usually we strive in our flesh to achieve some state of holiness. It will never happen. Remember our definition of holiness? It's being set apart for a purpose. Well, we are holy in Christ because God sets us apart through what Jesus did. But we live, practically, we live holy lives by what we set apart in our life. So holiness is not as much about what we do, but what we set apart for his purposes. If you want to know, are you being holy or not? Well, well let, me, let me ask you some questions. Do you set apart some of your time for his purposes? To be with him, to serve others in ministry. You're here, so you've at least set apart this time. Will you do it again tomorrow? And spend time with him, dwell with him then. Let me ask you another question. Do you set apart some of your money for his purposes? To give to the work of the Lord through this local assembly. Do you help others as God gives opportunity And lays it on your heart. Think about this one. Do you set apart some of your words for his purposes? By sharing the good news, by publishing and proclaiming all that you have in him. And sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Are all your words that you say, is all the money that you have, is all the time, is it for you? Or do you set apart some for him? That's how you can begin to put handles on holiness in your life. If you're trying and striving in the flesh, it's not going to work. Quit that. Quit trying to be holy by legalistic standards. What he wants us to do is live his life. And some of you are going to think this next statement is foolish, but it's much easier that way. There's a heavy burden that goes along with trying to be holy in the flesh. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And the author, the, 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 the point that the author of Hebrews is making here is that the Christian life doesn't have to be heavy. We make it heavy by our sin. We make it heavy by the baggage that we bring along with, with, with us. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be hard. Now, when it is, it's because we've added stuff to it ourselves. It didn't come from Christ. And we end up carrying around this burden. That's what the word weight means. And the burden keeps us from moving forward in faith. And it comes too much for us to bear and we stumble. And that's how some people think about holiness. 
I could never do that. Like, that is too much for me. You know, that's for pastors and for Bible guys, you know, like Spurgeon and Paul and name your favorite preacher or your favorite Bible character. I mean, first of all, if you only knew. But beyond that, the fact is God's desire is for it to be easy. It's just to be your life, living and giving and serving, spending time with him. Listen, if you're saved, you don't have to sin, according to Romans chapter 6. You have been freed from that. You're no longer in bondage to that, so don't go back to that. And now you are set apart. You are freed to go live your life for his glory. And, and what Hebrews 12.1 is saying here is anyone can do it. You don't have to let the weight of your burdens keep you from living a successful, God-glorifying life. But what you do have to do is lay those burdens aside. Lay that weight aside. And lay aside literally means to put off. Kind of like how we've been commanded to put off the old man. The old nature of sin that wants to keep us down. And wants to keep us burdened. And feeling the weight of being holy. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 says that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. See, if there's, if there's true holiness, you know what that means? There's fake holiness. And there's a lot of Christians out there portraying a holiness, but it's not true. It's fake because it's in the flesh. If it's from the old man, it's fake. If you put that off and you just live the life of Christ, you can achieve true holiness. But you got to put off the old man and put on the new man. And it's part of that process when you put off and you lay aside the stuff that comes with the old man, you get to switch burdens with Jesus. And Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, tells us that his burden is light. His burden is light. Come, of, come and, and unto him, all that, are, that labor and are heavy laden. And you know what he wants to do? He wants to give us rest. So your burdens... Your flesh, my flesh, the stuff that we add to our Christian walk is part of that old man. Leave all that stuff there. Lay it aside and don't bring it with you as you're walking with the Lord. Trade burdens with Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when you do that, what you end up doing is, 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 is trading a temporal weight of sin for an eternal weight of glory. According to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not the things which are seen, but things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And that old man, those burdens that carry along with it, they're all temporal. They're all of this life. They're all of this world. And all that wants you to focus on this world and on your fleshly desires, on what you deserve. But when you focus on the now, that, be that becomes sin because it's of the flesh. 
But you want us to trade that. Trade that for Jesus and then you get an eternal, eternal weight of glory. Because when you put off the old man and you live your life with the freedom that comes from the new man, your, your focus is on him. Your focus is eternal. And it doesn't mean that everything in life will be easy. But you have a proper perspective now. And you can see that the light affliction you face is, is but for a moment. And that it's light in the grand scheme of things. Compared to what Jesus went through. And it's light and it's but for a moment. James 4 calls our life a vapor. And you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And you get up the next day and you know what you do? You set it apart for him. So you live in him. You dwell with him. And then you go out in your life and as he gives you opportunity, you publish and proclaim all that you have in him. That's how you respond in obedience. Don't try harder. Just set your life apart for him and then live it. And struggles will still come. That's part of of, of living life. That's part of certainly the Christian life. You know, all that shall live godly shall suffer persecution. But you don't let that get you down because your focus is on the eternal weight of glory that we have in him. And so you just get up and you set that next day apart and you keep moving. And you keep walking in him. And when you do that, here's what happens. You will experience the true joy that comes from living in holiness. And that's our third handle. You get to relish the outcome. And the outcome is gladness, according to verse 17. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And look at this last sentence. And there was very great gladness. And here is what I want you to get from this. Obedience to God is equated to joy in the Bible. Now in the world it's opposite, especially our culture. Authority is is sometimes framed even in the negative. And we're self-made men and we're self-starters and the man's not going to keep me down, I'm my own man. And we're known for and we take pride in rugged individualism and there's a time and a place for that, but the, the problem is, is through, through culture and through the working of the world system and Satan working through culture, all of a sudden, in, in very subtle ways, obedience is looked down upon. And in some cases, rebellion is honored. And it even begins to permeate our homes and our families. And we think, listen, following Jesus can't be fun. It can't be joyful. I want what I want. And if I have to obey the Bible and live holy, that's the end of everything I desire. Blech. That sounds miserable. And the Bible just contradicts all of that. The Bible is truth. God knows where true joy is found. And he tells us that there can be pleasure in a sin, but it doesn't last Hebrews 11, 24 and 25, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And listen, that was Moses. By the way, the context of that was Moses 
choosing to, to not side with Pharaoh, his life would have been a life of pleasure. Much of the sin we partake in isn't in Pharaoh's house. It's not that pleasurable. But even if it is, it's just for a season, and then the consequences come. Job 20, verses 4 and 5 says, Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth? It's never changed. It's still this way. Ever since man was placed on earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. It doesn't last. But the joy of the Lord does. Gladness from him doesn't end. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, blessed, that word blessed means happy, is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Jeremiah 15, verse 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. John 15, verses 10 and 11 says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things, all of those first 10 verses of John chapter 15 about abiding, abiding in him, these things have I spoken unto you that your joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And we could keep going and going, but living this life, in obedience to the Lord, in, in not trying, but just this living the life of Christ in the new man, it brings joy and happiness and gladness. They are all tied together. So don't believe the lie that your enemy says that a life of obedience to the Lord is a drudgery. So that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is not a drudgery. The outcome is awesome. And listen, that's not just me and the Bible speaking. Listen, the Bible speaking should be enough. But that's not, that's not all. Go talk to any number of people who have lived a life of sin and see what they say about it. See if it worked out for them. See if it didn't come with hardships and regrets. And then go ask someone who spent their life in service to the Lord. How did their life turn out? Do they have regrets? And I'm not saying it'll be 100% either way, but I can guarantee you that you will hear the truth of the Bible overwhelmingly in those testimonies. The testimony of millions and millions of people throughout history scream to that one truth. There is joy found in obedience to the Lord, and there is misery when you ignore it. So recognize and respond so you can relish, know the truth, obey the truth, and take joy in the truth. God will do his part if you will do yours. And those are the handles of holiness that we see in this passage from a personal perspective and even a, a church perspective. But I want to take just a few minutes we have left and share with you how these apply from a parental perspective. So just sort of tying this back to my introduction. I just want to make this message, I believe it's important, this topic is really important. So I want to make this message as practical as possible. And I... And I think it's incredibly important even to the future of the church and, 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 and our children. Uh, 
that we instill principles of holiness into our children. Because, because like we talked about in the introduction, the, the world and its system, they are out, out to get them. And it's hard enough to battle the flesh. So with, with respect to these handles for holiness, here, here is how I see them playing out in parenting. Because while we didn't really talk about this, we kind of skipped over it, I, I want you to look back at Nehemiah 8.13 and see where Nehemiah, and particularly Ezra here, started. Nehemiah 8.13, on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And it started with the chief of the fathers and them being able to recognize that obligation. And when it comes to parenting, what we see in our passage is that we are to explain the obligation to our kids. It's exactly what Nehemiah and Ezra, the Levites, what they did to the Jews. The Jews didn't know what they didn't know. And neither do our kids. Neither do we in many, many instances. <clears throat> but listen, we teach our kids many, many things throughout life. I mean, even, even when we're not trying, we're teaching them by them watching us. But we're, we intentionally teach them, you know, how to navigate school, how, how to do things. Like if, if, if you're, you know, good at woodworking or working on cars or whatever, I, I don't happen to be good at either of those. But if you are, you know, and you just naturally teach your children, you know, how to do some of those things, appropriate manners, whatever it might be. But listen, we need to make sure that we are explaining and teaching our kids the obligation of holiness. Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7 says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt walk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. You know, you can only do that if you're living the life that we talked about earlier, when you're living that life of Christ. Your kids know who you are in your home. You can't fool them. So if you're, you're living, giving, and serving, well, I mean, that, that's just going to come out. Deuteronomy 6 is going to play out in your life. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4 says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. And will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. So we're to be living this life of holiness ourselves, and then we communicate that through word and deed to our children. But listen, again, I'm not talking about portraying to them and overlording God through legalistic expectations. And of course, how we deal with our children varies with age, but you know, this isn't Bible, but here's what I think you should do. I think you should drill Bible and Bible stories into your little ones. Just talk Bible all the time. And then as your kids get older, just keep open communication with them. And here's what that means in the context of protecting our kids and setting them up to seek holiness in their own life, which ultimately it will be up to them. And so for our older kids... You need to make sure they understand our biblical worldview. That's more important than ever. Because our biblical worldview has never been more at odds with culture's worldview. Not in America. We live in a changing world, a changing culture. 
So bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and then talk to them about what they're dealing with in schools these days and why it's wrong and what does God say about all of it. And I'll tell you what God says about genders. There are two, man and woman. And I'll tell you what God says about marriage, one man and one woman. Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25 are your references there if you, if you need them. But have those conversations with your kids and instill a biblical worldview. Again, they'll have to make their choice on their own, and they may choose a different path. And that doesn't mean you failed, but what you do is you explain. The obedience is on them, but that does bring us to our next point. You can't require obedience. They get to choose, but you can expect it. You can expect their obedience. Now, for little kids, I think you should demand it. Because that's what God tells us to do. Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I hear people complain sometimes about being, the, being told to obey. You know, when your parents say, well, like, why should I do that? It's like, well, because I told you so. And, and some people don't like that. And, and maybe there's some validity, validity to that. But listen, an acceptable answer is because the Bible says so to your little kids. The Bible says you should do it because it's right. And then with our older children, we need to expect obedience from them too, but there needs to be a shift in how you parent. You shouldn't treat a 16-year-old the same way you treat a 3-year-old. So you shouldn't demand as much as, rather set the expectations and monitor adherence. And so it becomes a matter of trust. And if your default position is to never trust them and you're always looking over their shoulder, there can be a tendency towards bitterness. And we're not to provoke our children to wrath or anger. So you set the expectation, you monitor adherence, but if they break that trust, you deal with the consequences. And you continue to work with them and you continue to explain and expect and build back trust. And you may be thinking, I don't know. I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure that that's right. Well, let me ask you a question. How does God deal with you as your heavenly father? Doesn't he trust you to make the right decisions? And when you don't, he deals with you as a son, and even disciplines. But then he picks you back up, and he points you in the right direction, and he says, get back after it. That's how he deals with me. And guess what? That makes me want to do right for the right reason. Not because I have a God looking over my shoulder all the time, waiting for me to mess up and then crush me when I do. No. But I'm, I'm, I'm moving from preaching to meddling, so I better keep moving. Um, and here's the third step. It's very simple, just very simple. That's to exclaim the outcome. Here's all this means. Quite simply, look for an opportunity to praise the Lord with your kids any chance you get. Any chance you get, something good happens as a result of obedience to the Lord, point them back to the truth of God's word. Anytime you can talk to your kids and say, man, look how good this is. Look at what God did. Isn't that great? And when you do things his way, that there's joy. It doesn't mean everything will be perfect, but you can gain strength from him. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Just sharing that with our children. And those are the handles for holiness, I think, both from a personal and a parental perspective. But the question before us now, as it is every week, is what are we going to do with it? Are you going to ignore them? 
and keep on your path, or will you give the Lord's way a shot? If you, if you do, I promise you won't regret it, regret it. And then for others of you out there, you just need to quit trying. You quit working in your flesh and building boundaries around your flesh. Listen, you're supposed to mortify it anyway, not fence it. Legalism isn't the answer. Surrender is. Living, giving, and serving, according to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's the only way to true holiness.